0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode number 220 of Once Upon a Crime. You who have been listeners of this podcast for a while, know that Halloween is my favorite holiday. Part of the reason for this is because there's no pressure to give gifts, no fancy dinners that take you all day to prepare, 20 minutes to eat, and hours for cleanup, and you don't even have to invite your problematic relatives over. Nope, all that's required is to maybe purchase a bag of premium candy for trick-or-treaters and keep the porch light on. Even decorating your house or wearing a costume is optional, but of course, adds to the fun. To me, the best part of Halloween is the opportunity once a year to immerse ourselves in things that may be considered outside of the norm. It's a time when we're free to embrace the shadow side of ourselves and indulge in all that's dark and morbid, even if just for a little while. Unless, of course, you're a true crime podcaster. Well, then every day is Halloween. One way that we indulge in the dark and creepy at our house is by going full Griswold with our outdoor Halloween decorations. Last year, we added a 13-foot skeleton and special lighting. This year's additions include zombies, sound effects piped through outdoor speakers, and if you look in our front window, you'll see a number of really strange things going on inside, from dancing skeletons to the undead wrapping on our windows, beckoning you inside. It's pretty cool. But even those of us who go a little over the top to entertain and or scare trick-or-treaters on All Hallows' Eve, the decorations I'll describe in this episode were discovered to be a real-life horror show, once it became clear that actual victims of violent crimes and tragedies were part of the display. I've titled this collection of true-life horror stories, Creepy AF Halloween Tales. You may want to listen with the lights on. (laughs) Over the years with the advancements in technology, It's now possible for regular people to create amazing holiday displays in front of their homes and businesses. Lighting, sound, animatronic figures, and more have all become more affordable and easier to set up in the last decades. Some who love to get into the holiday spirit have taken advantage of this and created elaborate and even realistic displays to share with friends and neighbors. Christmas, of course, is the holiday when many people light their homes and decorate to the hilt, but Halloween comes in at a close second. In years past, I've seen one person in my town create a full-scale replica of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds movie scene in their front yard, complete with a bloody, shattered phone booth with carcasses of crows and other fake birds smashed into its glass walls. It was truly awesome and very imaginative. And of course, there's no shortage of ghosts, witches, vampires, mummies, and zombies to be found decorating porches and lawns in October. Because these types of morbid decorations have become commonplace and more sophisticated, Sometimes it can be hard to tell just what is real and what is fake. This, you may be surprised to learn, has led to some bizarre and tragic circumstances. These first two stories I'll detail for you are not based on crimes, but tragic events. The events of the first case unfolded one morning, five days before Halloween in 2005. In the town of Frederica, Delaware, as people made their way to work and school, some noticed what they assumed was a homemade Halloween display. Upon observing what appeared to be a life-size mannequin hanging high up in a tree, some may have thought it was overly morbid or even in bad taste, as it had been placed in a residential neighborhood and could clearly be seen by people driving past and walking down the street. The road was a busy one, so several people saw the hanging figure early in the morning of October 26th. But being so close to Fright Night, it was easy to dismiss what they observed as a dummy strung up in a tree simply to add to the macabre spirit of Halloween. But later that morning, perhaps when the sun had fully risen in the sky to reveal the figure more clearly, police began receiving reports of a body suspended from a tree. When officers arrived around 11 a.m., it was determined that it was not a Halloween prop that people had seen, but the body of a 42-year-old woman who had tragically decided to end her own life in a very public way. A noose made out of rope was thrown over a tree branch 15 feet in the air, where the poor woman had hung herself. It was determined that she had most likely died sometime overnight or in the early hours of the morning when she was discovered. State police spokesman Jeff Oldham reported that the deceased lived a quarter mile from where her body was found. She was not named out of respect for her family's privacy. Although such a shocking event seems almost unthinkable, it was repeated a few short years later when another body was mistaken for a Halloween display. But the horrible truth would not be discovered quite as quickly the second time. In Marina del Rey, California, in 2009, a body seen slumped over a chair on an apartment's balcony appeared fake to the many residents who happened to see it. Or perhaps because actually observing a dead body out in the open seems so unlikely to us that we automatically dismiss the notion out of hand. That is perhaps what occurred over one week in October when dozens of residents living in a three-story apartment building saw the body of their neighbor, 75-year-old Mustafa Mahmoud Zayed. His body remained lying across patio furniture on his balcony for five days as residents came and went from the building. He had been shot once through the eye. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department reported that Mr. Zayed lived on the third floor of the 800-unit complex located on the 13900 block of Bora Bora Way. The body had first been observed on October 10th, but not reported until an acquaintance of the deceased showed up at Mr. Zayed's apartment and found the decomposing body. A week later, after an autopsy was conducted, the county coroner determined the cause of death to be suicide. A suicide note was also found at the scene, officials reported. It was further determined that Mr. Zayed had probably died sometime on the Sunday of the previous week. A few neighbors who were interviewed by police recalled hearing a popping sound on Sunday. Mr. Zayed's body was in plain view from the street, but a number of factors may have contributed to the length of time it took to make the discovery. The layout of the apartment building was such that the body was partially obscured by the balcony's railing. In addition, it had been a cold and rainy week, and many of the over 1,000 tenants in the building had remained mostly indoors. Those who had seen the body said they didn't think to call police because they couldn't imagine what they were seeing was an actual dead human being. One resident of the building, Austin Raishbrook, said, He looked fake. It looked like somebody had thrown a dummy over the back of a chair. Another resident who heard about the body but had not seen it commented that the whole ordeal was, quote, a little creepy. The deceased, Mustafa Mahmoud Zayed was an accomplished structural engineer who was called brilliant by those who knew him. He had worked on large scale projects, including high rise buildings in downtown Los Angeles. His friends said he was well liked, a gentleman, and a trustworthy and reliable friend. Originally from Egypt, Zayed was highly educated and a lover of the opera, the theater, classical music, and spoke multiple languages. Dr. Jim Moore, a friend of Zayed, said the engineer had traveled around the globe and loved to tell stories about his adventures. He was a swell fellow all around, Moore said. You could sit with him easily and listen to his stories all night long. He was just a wonderful man. Others expressed shock and disbelief that Zayed had ended his own life. It's totally outside of his character as far as we knew, said a woman named Patricia, who called Zayed a dear friend. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, You can access Help in the U.S. 24 hours a day by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. In this next story, the bizarre circumstances of a violent crime led to a grisly discovery that at first appeared to be a Halloween prank. Just after 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, October 13th, a woman walking her child to school saw a figure hooked onto a chain-link fence in Chillicothe, Ohio. Because it was so close to Halloween, Tammy Dixon assumed it was a prank meant to spook passersby near her North Brownell Street home. She glanced at it quickly and then hurried her child off to school. Just a few minutes later, a man walking his dog saw several items discarded near an American Electric Power substation. A chain-link fence ringed the power plant at the edge of a quiet working-class neighborhood, and the items were lying on the ground outside of the fence. As he approached the corner of Hardin Drive and North Brownell Street, the man saw a cell phone, a state ID card, and a shoe. He retrieved the ID card and cell phone and continued on his way home. He planned to contact the police to find out where to turn in the items, assuming they'd either been lost or stolen. Meanwhile, at about the same time, construction workers who had arrived to work at the AEP lot also noticed the figure hanging from the fence. But when they investigated, they saw that it was not a Halloween prank, but the body of a woman. One of the workers ran off to phone the police, while the other two took the body down from the fence and laid it on the ground, not immediately sure whether she was alive or dead. By the time help arrived just minutes later, it had already been determined that the woman was dead. She had obviously been beaten. Her face was almost unrecognizable due to the number of injuries she had sustained. The construction workers who removed the body from the fence reported to police that they'd found the woman hanging by one shirt sleeve, which was caught in the chain links. It appeared she had been either trying to climb up or down the fence, most likely trying to escape her attacker. Her sleeve, it was theorized, had become entangled as she tried to flee, trapping her and leaving her tragically at the complete mercy of her killer. Her body was found just 200 yards from where the items had been discovered by the dog walker. It was his tip about the found ID card that helped to identify the victim as 31-year-old Rebecca Cade. Homicide investigators were dispatched to the crime scene where they discovered a trail of blood leading towards the fence line, suggesting that Cade had already been injured when she was overtaken and beaten to death by her attacker. Just yards away, the apparent murder weapon was discovered. A large rock described as the size of a grapefruit was found covered in blood. Investigators began interviewing everyone who knew the victim in hopes of identifying her killer. Rebecca Cade was born and raised in Chillicothe, Ohio, home to about 20,000 residents, located about 45 miles south of Columbus. Rebecca's friends and neighbors described her as a sweet girl. A friend and former roommate, said Cade had learning disabilities and was easily manipulated. She was very gullible, very easily misled, Tabitha Long told ABC News affiliate Up North Live. As long as she thought you were her friend, she would do just about anything for you, Long said. Cade was the mother of a 15-month-old son who was being raised by his aunt Denise Hughes. Cade had long struggled with addictions to drugs and alcohol, but still tried to provide what she could for her child. Hughes told investigators she'd last seen Rebecca a week or so earlier when she'd come by to purchase diapers and food for her son, Brian. Hughes had taken her to the store to make these purchases. Cade didn't mention having problems with anyone at that time, Hughes said. Hughes, the sister of Brian's father, told reporters that Rebecca had tried many times to get her life together. She had friends and family who cared for her and whom she lived with on occasion, Hughes said. But when she was drinking, she disappeared into the streets often landing in jail on one minor charge or another. After being released, she'd attempt once more to stay sober, but soon the cycle would begin again. She made a lot of mistakes, Denise Hughes said, but Rebecca didn't deserve that, what happened to her. She was always running the streets and always doing the drugs, but she had people who loved her. I hope she knew that, Hughes told Up North Live. Police learned that just a few months before her death, Rebecca had been badly beaten and was hospitalized for her injuries. Hughes had gone to the hospital to see her, but said Rebecca had no memory of the attack. Piecing together the victim's last known movements, investigators soon zeroed in on one man, 27-year-old Donnie Kokenauer Jr. Just hours after her body was found, Kokenauer was located and taken in for questioning. He admitted to police that he and Rebecca had gotten into an argument just hours before she was found murdered. He said they'd argued near the railroad trestle near Brownell Street. Kokenauer had a long criminal history, including charges for assault. He, like his victim, had also been diagnosed with learning disabilities. And in addition, Kokenauer had difficulties communicating due to a speech impediment. Investigators, however, soon announced Kokenauer as their murder suspect after reviewing the evidence. A blood trail led from the street and to the fence line where Cade's body was found. Investigators suspected she had been injured most likely by a blow to the face. She then ran, but was stopped by the six-foot-tall chain-link fence. She attempted to climb up and over the top in a desperate attempt to escape, but just a few feet up, her shirt sleeve had caught on the fence, rendering her helpless. It was just another incident of bad luck in what must have seemed to Rebecca like a lifetime filled with misfortune. The petite dark-haired woman, who stood at just a hair over five feet tall, dangled helplessly on the fence, unable to reach the ground nor climb up it. Investigators believe Kokenauer was still angry at whatever they had fought about and seeing the object of his ire trapped, had picked up a large rock and begun striking her repeatedly. Still, she attempted to fight off the attack until her last breath. Defensive wounds were noted on her hands and arms. An autopsy would determine the cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head. Kokenauer then dropped the rock and walked home where he showered and attempted to discard his bloody clothes. He was picked up by police soon after and the clothing was later recovered. Police only determined that Rebecca and her killer were acquaintances, but did not specify how they knew one another. Kokenauer was arrested and his bail was set for $2 million. He was placed under suicide watch at the Ross County Jail. But this case would not be as cut and dried as it would appear. Johnny Kokenauer Jr. was indicted on one count of murder less than a month after Rebecca Cade's body was found in October 2015. His attorney, James Bulger, claimed that Kokenauer had suffered from serious brain damage due to a drug addiction that began when he was just 10 years old. Bulger told the court that his client was unable to understand the charges against him and could not assist in his own defense. The judge agreed and found Kokenauer not competent to stand trial he was sent to a psychiatric facility for observation. After being evaluated at the Timothy B. Moritz Forensic Unit, Kokenauer was diagnosed with a speech and sound disorder, antisocial personality disorder, and substance abuse disorder. He once again was found incompetent to stand trial and was ordered to receive additional treatment and prescribed medication. Finally, in August 2016, Kokenauer was found competent to stand trial. A psychiatrist testified that away from drugs and alcohol, the defendant had, quote, improved his ability to function, end quote. He also testified that Kokenauer now understood the charges he was facing and the seriousness of the crime he was accused of. Other details of the crime were revealed when the trial finally began in April 2017. The extent of Rebecca Cade's injuries were detailed for the jury. In addition to being beaten with a rock, she had also been stabbed in the face, neck, and head. The defendant took the stand and admitted he'd had sex with Rebecca the night before she died. He also admitted that they had argued. Kokenauer claimed Rebecca had bit him during this argument and he'd retaliated by hitting her. But that was the extent of it, he claimed. The prosecution called Kokenauer's sister, Lisa Frost, as a witness. She testified that her brother had shown up at her home that evening in muddy clothes, covered in blood. He'd said that he'd fought with Rebecca and, quote, thought he might have killed her, end quote. His sister allowed him to take a shower while she bagged his bloody clothing, which was later discarded in a dumpster. She also admitted on the stand that she'd initially lied to the police when first questioned. Lisa Frost would later be indicted for tampering with evidence and would eventually recant her statement, saying she was on drugs at the time she made it. She would change her story to say that her brother had only told her that he'd, quote, been jumped that night. The prosecution's case presented evidence that blood found on the recovered clothing Was analyzed by the crime lab and matched to Rebecca Cade. But the defense was able to cast enough doubt about the night in question and witnesses' recollections. In their version of events of the night in question, a, quote, rowdy bonfire had taken place, not far from the crime scene. Several people had been in attendance, including some people, the defense claimed, who'd been on bad terms with the victim. One by one, prosecution witnesses were portrayed as unreliable, Most had been under the influence of alcohol or drugs, which may have impaired their memory, the defense stated. One witness claimed to have seen a woman follow Cade into an alley and attack her. Still another person called to testify said she'd witnessed Cade get into a car with three unidentified people that night. The jury deliberated for two days before sending word to the judge that they were deadlocked. The judge asked them to continue deliberations after lunch. They did so, and that evening, they announced they'd reached a verdict. Kokenauer was acquitted of the murder charge for which he could have served 15 years to life if found guilty. Rebecca's parents, Mike and Cindy Cade, sat in stunned silence as the not guilty verdict was read. Only four months after Donnie Kokenauer Jr. was acquitted of the murder of Rebecca Cade, he was back behind bars, this time for an assault charge. According to court records, on August 28, 2017, Kokenauer punched a 58-year-old man in the face who had interrupted an argument he was having with a female neighbor. Kokenauer was convicted of assault and sentenced to 30 days in jail. Before beginning his sentence and still out on bail, Kokenauer was charged with aggravated robbery after charging at a stranger, punching him twice in the eye, and then stealing his cell phone. The victim claimed that Kokenauer had also swung a knife at him and made threats. In September 2017, Six more charges were filed against Donnie Kokenauer, including theft and vehicular trespass. He was held on $15,000 bail. The last information I was able to find regarding this menace to society was a line item in a police blotter from April 27th of just last year, 2020. Donnie Kokenauer Jr. was cited on charges of trespassing and indecent exposure. It does not appear that he served any jail time for this charge. Okay, one last really bizarre story regarding a corpse mistaken for a prop. But this time, it was done deliberately. If you're old enough, you may remember a television show from the 1970s titled The Six Million Dollar Man. If you're not, and have never heard of it, not to worry, it's not crucial to the story. I learned about this story from Atlas Obscura on Slate.com. That's a great place to find really strange stories like this one. So here we go. This is from an Atlas Obscura blog article, in April of 2014, titled How a Real Corpse Ended Up in a California Fun Park Spook House. Quote, it was 1976. Crew members from the television show The Six Million Dollar Man were preparing to shoot on location at the Pike Amusement Park in Long Beach, California. The plan was to capture Steve Austin, who was the main character of the show, riding in one of the cars along the track of a spooky ride called The Laugh in the Dark. The ride featured a tunnel in which ghouls, demons, and skeletons would pop up and scare you as your car jolted from side to side in the dark. These are also known as dark rides. Those are the rides that you go in with somebody you like so that you can make out, or just maybe try to grab their hand if you're very innocent. Let's continue. While sprucing up the set, a $6 million employee spotted a mannequin hanging from a noose in the corner. He reached for the mannequin's arm, and the arm broke off in his hand. Looking at the dismembered limb, The worker was astonished to see what looked like bone beneath layers of desiccated skin. This was no mannequin. This was a man. The hanging corpse in question was once Elmer McCurdy, an outlaw who died in a gunfight with police 65 years before being found in the funhouse. In 1911, the mischief-making vagabond robbed a train near Okesa, Oklahoma, and then took his spoils, $46 and two jugs of whiskey. He then holed up in a barnyard on the Kansas border. Police pursued him and ended up killing him in a shootout among the hay. Okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Elmer McCurdy, and we're going to call him a failed outlaw because he really didn't do very well for himself as an outlaw. So in 1911, when McCurdy tried to rob the train in Oklahoma, the explosives that he used to open the train safe ended up melting the silver that he wanted to steal. His subsequent forays into lawbreaking did not go much better. And this detail I found in an article posted on All That's Interesting from June 22, 2020. It says, then when he tried to rob a bank in Kansas, he repeated his earlier mistake and melted the contents of the bank's safe. Then in October, he and some accomplices tried to rob another train in Oklahoma. They wanted to get the Native American travel payments that they believed the train was carrying. However, he and his accomplices were wrong about the train's departure and arrival times and ended up robbing a passenger train instead. Thus, they were only able to get $46 and two jugs of whiskey. When police found him at the barn, McCurdy shot at them and announced that they would not take him alive. So the police shot back and took him dead, end quote. So how did this failed outlaw end up as a corpse in an amusement park in the 1970s? Okay, so here is his journey. McCurdy's body was taken to a funeral home in Pahuksa, but no one claimed it. Seeing a money-making opportunity, the undertaker embalmed him and allowed visitors to view the preserved corpse if they placed a nickel in his mouth. Okay, that is just weird. Five years into this lucrative scheme, a carnival man turned up at the funeral home claiming to be a long-lost relative of McCurdy and requested to take the body so it could be laid to rest properly. He was, of course, the Atlas Obscura article says, lying through his teeth. Within weeks, the McCurdy corpse was star attraction of a traveling carnival. These carnival owners then displayed the body throughout the United States and titled this oddity as, quote, the bandit who wouldn't give up. Over the next several decades, the body got into the hands of different people wanting to profit from it. Many of them were unaware that it was real. As the body changed hands, it showed up in various places, including an amusement park near Mount Rushmore, the Hollywood Wax Museum, and several haunted houses. Makes sense. So for 60 years, McCurdy's mummy made the rounds of Carnival's wax museums and haunted houses until it turned up inexplicably at the Pike in Long Beach. By this time, the legend of outlaw McCurdy was long forgotten, and the body was assumed to be a fake. After the $6 million discovery, police identified McCurdy and sent the body to Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, for a long-delayed internment. McCurdy's grave is marked by a stone that lists his death date as 1911 and burial date as 1977, with no elaboration on the matter. A thick layer of concrete atop the casket ensures that the corpse won't go walkabout again. A very helpful note here at the bottom of the Atlas Obscura article, it says, For more on Elmer McCurdy and the full rundown of his travels, pre- and post-mortem, check out Mark Svenhold's book, Elmer McCurdy, The Life and Afterlife of an American Outlaw. That's very interesting. That is so weird, though. So I read that to you because I just wanted to end this Halloween episode on a bit of a lighter note. Although, it's still kind of a creepy story. <laughs> that will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. And that will wrap up Spooky Month. Except for Patreon members. If you're a patron, you'll get to hear one more halloweeny type crime story. I'll tell you all about a case called... The Witchcraft Murder Plot. Don't miss it, it's pretty crazy and you've probably never heard about it before. To join Patreon for bonus episodes, early release and ad-free versions of all new episodes, and cool swag sent to you in the mail, go to patreon.com slash crime. That extra episode will release on Halloween week, and for everyone else, I'll see you next on November 1st, the Day of the Dead, with a new series for November. We're continuing our tradition at the end of each year To pull out a few listener suggestion cases to cover. I can't wait to dig into these with you. Make sure to subscribe or follow the podcast on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow us on TikTok. I'll be sharing a video of my over-the-top Halloween display, so you'll want to check that out. I might also give you a peek at my Halloween costume. Hey, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. I'll be posting a show us your costumes link on the Facebook page. Get links to all our social media in one place our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Research, production assistance, and audio editing for this episode was courtesy of Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another and stay spooky.